0: Welcome to Simply Youth Podcast. New episode every Friday
1: on Spotify and more platforms.
0: We dedicate this episode to Lokmanlim, who last week was assassinated. After suffering years from threats and now four bullets in the head, remember his powerful journey within his nonprofit organization, Imam, an open archive for Lebanese social and political history. He used art and culture to advocate for change, and never refrained from voicing his frustration towards the governing class. Freedom of speech is under attack, and no one should be above the law. We will remember you, and your work will live on. Recently, the second largest city in Lebanon, one of its poorest and the home of the greatest number of Lebanese billionaires, was under attack, the government is a perpetrator. Frustration of tight coronavirus restrictions increased, given we lack a proper social security network. With more people falling below the poverty line, Tripoli natives took down to the streets in demand for basic human rights. As they sought to storm Vesteraille and threw stones and buildings, they were met by live bullets by the ISF who said they will do whatever it takes to stop our protesters and ask them to go back home. Two have been killed and more than 226 injured. We stand for the people of Tripoli and we believe that their rage is justifiable and they should not be met with bullets. Those who have clinged to power for too long have taken everything they have, but people have nothing to lose anymore especially after the August 4th explosion of a governmental failure to commit to its promises. Five days to complete investigation has become six months and running.
1: Welcome to a new episode of Simply With Podcast. We are accompanied by Aya Majloub, a researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch. She holds an MA in Middle Eastern Studies from Harvard University and a BA in Politics, Psychology and Sociology from the University of Cambridge. She's the author of There is a Price to Pay, the criminalization of peace speech in Lebanon. Her work investigates human rights violations in both Lebanon and Bahrain. Some of her work tackles the livelihood of Syrian and Palestinian refugees. She was a member of the International Human Rights Clinic and Harvard Law School, where she researched the legal status of Syrian refugees in Jordan and the human rights implications of her inability to obtain civil and legal documentation. And recently, she reported the events of Tripoli and the brutality against protesters. Thank you, Aya, for joining us today. Can you give us your input on the situation in Tripoli?
2: Sure. Thank you both so much for having me on this podcast. It's really an honor. Uh, So let's get right right into it. Uh, As as you mentioned, the protests in Tripoli were really fueled by people's grievances, social and economic grievances specifically during the lockdown. Um, Since the beginning of the lockdown, almost a year ago now, uh, we've been documenting the really uh, insufficient and uncoordinated and incoherent government plan to provide assistance to its residents. Um, The first publication we had on this issue was back in April, April of uh, last year, where we noted that despite the government implementing a lockdown order and forcing people to stay at home, uh, and not go to their businesses, and not run their businesses, they weren't giving people the resources that they needed to be able to stay at home. So there were many announcements by the government that they were going to provide either in-kind or cash assistance, but some of those never materialized. They then announced that they were going to provide cash assistance through the army but that, uh, you know, between when the announcement was made and when, people, when the army started distributing aid, the value of the money that they had pledged, 400,000 Lebanese liras, significantly declined. And not all of the people who, you know, they, they didn't distribute aid to the entire amount of families or number of families that they said they would. Um, The other complicating factor as well was that, as usual, politicians in Lebanon started arguing over which families would receive the aid. Because politicians wanted to distribute the aid to people loyal to them, to use it as another method of using state resources to further their patronage and further their influence within their communities. So there was so much political Bickering over who was going to receive an amount as little as four hundred thousand Lebanese lira, uh, and in the end, most of that aid was not delivered. Um, so since you know, since this you know this time last year, we've had successive lockdowns, uh, all of which have failed to stem the rise in coronavirus cases. And a lot, you know, a big part of that failure is that the government didn't implement a social assistance plan. To ensure that people could stay at home so during the lockdown i went to tripoli and i went to saida and it's you know in in a lot of places particularly in the suits of these areas life was almost normal um, and that's because people didn't really have any other choice if they didn't go out to work if they didn't go to their shops and their businesses that meant that they weren't going to be able to feed their families that night um, so for them you know the, the constant Rhetoric that we heard is that you know for sure I would die of hunger if I stayed home. If I go out, maybe Corona will kill me. But if I stay home, for sure, me and my family will die of hunger. Um, and that's something that the government throughout this entire year hasn't been able to uh, deal with. They had they've they their approach to the COVID pandemic has been a security approach. So apply a lockdown and then put ISF checkpoints and ensure that people were staying at home. But they were missing this parallel economic and social strategy to provide aid to families so that what happened happened in Tripoli wouldn't happen. So in Tripoli, people went out to protest this lockdown. They were forced to stay at home without any means to do so. Um, And instead of the government, then immediately uh, putting plans to provide assistance and telling the people of Tripoli that, yes, we understand your grievances. Yes, you are one of the poorest cities, not just in Lebanon, but on the entire Mediterranean. Yes, your needs have been neglected for years, but now we're going to step up and provide aid. They didn't do that. What they did was send the army in, accuse people, uh, accuse the protesters of being paid. Uh, accuse you know various foreign powers of a conspiracy theory against the politicians in Tripoli. I mean it was really shameful. It wasn't until several days later that the government said that they were going to provide aid and even then they didn't give a timeline. Uh, So you know the the lockdown started to be eased today um, and I think the first distribution of aid is going to take place in the next couple of days. Uh, So really there wasn't an urgent economic social response in the way that there was an urgent security response.
0: So I have a two-part question. So do you have any optimism towards the new World Bank loan to support communities at risk or will it go to waste? Other than that, what tokens were used by the ISF in the Tripoli project?
2: So the, the first question is a very good one. So as many of you may know, the World Bank recently signed an agreement with the Lebanese government to provide aid to some of the, the poorest uh, people in the country. Now, this you know, this aid has the um, potential to really help families meet some of their basic needs, including paying rent, purchasing food, uh, paying for healthcare, education, but it's. It's a cash, you know, it's, it's a cash program. It's a program where the government has lists and then distributes these very small payments to the poorest families. So it's a, you know, I, I like to describe it as a band-aid. It's a, it puts a band-aid on the existing problem of poverty in Lebanon, but it doesn't solve it. So it gives people the resources they need to stay alive, but it doesn't give them the resources that they need to pull themselves out of the cycle of poverty. For this, you really need uh, a complete rethinking of social and economic services in Lebanon. You really need a proper safety net. You need uh, good quality, accessible healthcare. You need good quality and accessible education. You need a pension, you need unemployment benefits. You need a whole host of other social uh, safety nets and social services that people can rely on so that they don't fall into poverty. The World Bank program could be good in helping people meet their basic needs, but it's not going to fundamentally, you know, pull people out of poverty. It's not going to enrich the economy in the country. It's it's not going to do that. Um, And that's assuming that all of the money goes to the intended families. Now, as we know in Lebanon, you know, we've billions of dollars have been poured into the country, but very little of that money actually reaches the populations it was intended to reach. There's so much theft of the of public money. There's so much corruption that politicians have been able to, for years, to get away with uh, siphoning off money to their constituents, or you know, you set you know instead of uh, giving the money to populations it was intended to, giving it to their supporters instead. Uh, so you know, we have a long history of this. So it's really up to the World Bank to ensure that this doesn't happen in this case, and this starts by implementing a very comprehensive, concrete uh, monitoring framework um, with which they can continue to monitor where this money is going and then hold individuals accountable if there is any corruption or misappropriation of these funds.
0: Yeah, I'm even surprised why the World Bank even give us money to begin with, and especially it's not any sustainable solution, only like advance corruption and embezzlement. However, like stepping back before the surge of COVID-19 stopped us, the Lebanese population swarmed the streets as part of the October Revolution against our corrupt regime. They were met with violence by security forces, primarily by the parliament police, alongside arrests for social media posts attacking political parties. Can you tell us more about the violations recorded against free speech during the protests and why you believe the revolution is far from over? Are these violations individual mistakes or part from a collective systemic order from above to silence protesters?
2: Again, these are really very, very good uh, questions. So, the types of, so, you know, as, as you alluded to, we've been on the ground monitoring the protests since they began in October 2019. And we noted some pretty serious violations by security forces. So, on the one hand, so, You know, there are very well established international standards and guidelines for how security forces are allowed to use weapons. So you can divide weapons into two categories. You have lethal force. So that's, you know, live ammunition uh, comes as lethal force. Then you have things called non-lethal weapons. And these are intended for crowd control and riot control. So things like tear gas, things like uh, rubber bullets, things like uh, water cannons or pepper spray; those are called non-le- non-lethal weapons, and those weapons can be used to uh, crowd control, to control a protest that has gone out of hand. But they can't be used. I mean, it's it's illegal to suppress a protest that isn't uh, that's peaceful, that's not violent. So we did document instances where security forces um suppressed a protest and re- using these weapons despite the fact that the protesters weren't violent so the response was not proportional and not legal um but then even when pro even when security forces were dispersing assemblies that or protests that had turned violent which they could do um, they used the equipment that they have in illegal ways so There are very clear standards on the use of tear gas, for example. So, you shouldn't use excessive amounts of tear gas. You shouldn't use tear gas in enclosed spaces. You shouldn't fire tear gas canisters directly at protesters, uh, you know, at the protesters' levels and protesters' heads. You're supposed to fire them up into the air. Because if these canisters hit a person in the head, uh, then that then that can cause serious injury. And we've seen people in Iraq, for example, die from getting hit, hit by tear gas canisters in the head. Uh, so that's, you know, the misuse or unlawful use of tear gas canisters. And tear gas is one thing that we documented. Uh, with regards to rubber bullets, now rubber bullets is a very fancy way to say, you know, or a very sanitized way to describe what they actually are. But really, they're just normal bullets that are encoded in rubber but inside is a normal bullet. Uh, So rubber bullets are also only supposed to be used against individuals who are posing an imminent threat. Not, they can't be used, you know, just fired, you know, willy nilly at protesters. They have to be used to to against somebody if that person is posing an imminent threat to security officials or to other uh, individuals in the protest. And even then, Rubber bullets should only be fired from the abdomen and below. But in many occasions, we saw security forces firing haphazardly at protesters and hitting protesters on their eyes, their heads, their backs, clearly showing a misuse of these rubber bullets. so those are some of the ways that we documented the misuse of non-lethal weapons. And then you had, of course, the beatings that we witnessed and were broadcast on live television as well. Um, and then, of course, we had the, we documented the use of lethal force. Um, so weapons that could cause death, uh, bullets, and also these metal pellets that uh, we saw being used during the August 8th protest after the blast happened. Um, So on on these metal pellets, basically, there are cartridges that the security forces shoot from rifles. And these cartridges then disperse uh, these small metal pellets. But these metal pellets get dispersed over a broad area. So there's no way that security forces can really determine whether or not they're hitting their intended target. They're not precise weapons. And therefore, they should never be used in crowd control but we documented security forces using them during the August 8th protest and a few protests after that. Um, we also documented security forces using live ammunition or bullets uh, during August 8th, despite the fact that all of them, from the army to the parliament police to the ISF, said that they didn't use live ammunition. But we were able, through analyzing video footage, doing interviews, going to back to the scene and seeing bullet holes in the walls to determine that they were lying, that they did actually use live ammunition against protesters. Um, And live ammunition should never be used as a crowd control method. It can only be used to prevent very serious uh, danger or threat of life. So you can only use it if the protester you're using it against was threatening the life of security officials or of other people in the protest. Um, So those are some of the main violations that we've been documenting over the past uh, year and a half almost. Um, But what's really striking is security forces really haven't taken responsibility. So to your question of, you know, was it individual or was it an order? I mean, obviously all security forces say that uh, there are no orders to violate protesters' rights. So these are individual cases, and of course we know that you know these things happen in even the most disciplined armies in the world. But the difference is that these people are then held accountable. So if you're a law enforcement officer um, and you fired, and you got you know like you know you were you were worried or you got overexcited or you got a bit scared and you fired into the air, now that's illegal. Um, and that person should be held accountable. Um, but what we saw from security forces is they just blamed each other. So we sent letters to the army, the ISF and parliament police, um, asking them what, uh, accountability proceedings they had launched against their members who were found to have acted improperly. And all of them told us that our members didn't act improperly. It was members of the other security forces. Uh, Now, we know that's not to be true, because we have video footage, we have interviews, we we saw in person. Um, But really, there is, you know, security forces fear that if they admit that there are mistakes within their ranks, then they are decreasing what they call haybet al qiwal amin, you know, the prestige of the security forces. But it's actually, you know, what we've been trying to advocate for is actually it's the complete opposite. Because when people see that members of the security forces are abiding by strict standards, that if they break the law, they're being held accountable, I think people are likely to trust them a bit more. Um, And here, I mean, I would love to to hear from, from you guys if you heard that the security forces were you know, every time that they promised an investigation, that they actually released the results of the investigation and told people exactly what went wrong and how many people were held accountable. Would this increase your faith in the security forces?
0: I think like normally like the Lebanese population really have uphold the sanctity towards the, the army. We have to love the army, we have to respect the army, the army in Arasna, you know, the army has committed so many violations towards human beings, we have a lot of victims, especially during the revolution, what happened, People lost their eyes, their for, for sight, and for, for injured. So, like, we have a right to know who are the culprits and the individuals who attack them. Especially like, right now, it, exactly what you said. Like, I remember you, like, Human Rights Watch, sent a report to be uh, General Joseph Macron told him about, about all the violations. We started blaming other institutions, and that always mm-hmm. happens. And I think that we should be accountable, take accountability, take responsibility for. Absolutely. So going to our next question, what amendments to the defamation laws must be adopted in order to end the police state regime enforced in the past few years, reminiscent of a Syrian occupation before 2005? Because as I said in the introduction, many people were uh, arrested and and investigated with because of social media posts and for attacking the presidents. So what kind of amendments to forbid these laws should be
2: so most countries have laws called defamation laws, which are laws that protect individuals from unfair attacks on their um, uh, from unfair attacks on their reputation. So, so for example, if I'm in the U.S. and I say, I don't know, so you know, so and so person is uh, a liar and they shouldn't be trusted, that person has a right to file a lawsuit against me. Uh, saying that this isn't true and I want compensation because what I said about me was not true and impacted my business. So then the lawsuit becomes, you know, was what I said true or not? Uh, if it's true, then, you know, I, I keep, nothing happens. And then if it's not true, then I have to pay this person compensation. And that's, I mean, that's a very, Uh, you know, every country in the world has some sort of defamation laws to protect individuals from unfair attacks on their reputations. The difference in Lebanon is that these laws are criminal, meaning you don't only uh, have to pay a fine but you can face prison time and have a criminal record just because of something that you said online. And what's even worse is in Lebanon, truth is not necessarily a defense. So even if I say, you know, so-and-so is a liar, that person can sue me and I can go to prison, even if I can prove that I, what I said was correct, that it was accurate. Um, and so as you can imagine, politicians and religious officials and security officials uh, have been using these laws, that these really unfair and outdated laws, to silence anybody who criticizes them, even if what that person was saying is true. Uh, so over the last several years, we've been documenting an increase in the use of these laws, uh, and we actually got numbers from the ISF because when somebody files a complaint, because it's a criminal complaint, it goes to the police station or the security agency, and then they call in this you know person who posted the tweet or Facebook post or whatever it was, and they have to. Ent- interrogate that person. So that these complaints have to go through security forces. So we got numbers from these security forces and they really showed just how much these kinds of uh, complaints were increasing. So for example, the, they gave us not, so we requested this information back in May, 2019. So the numbers that they gave us, we requested numbers from January, 2015 to May, 2019. And they told us that they have investigated 3,599 defamation cases in this time period, which is an insane number. I mean, I haven't done the math on how many every day, but that's really, really. I mean, it's nuts. Um, and what's even worse is that the numbers uh, were increasing every year. So we had we the numbers showed a 325 percent increase in defamation cases between 2015 and 2018, uh, which also is a very, very worrying trend. And because you get called into a police station uh, and you're interrogated without a lawyer, we documented several abuses against people who were called into the police station for investigation um, that we think were intended to humiliate that person, to punish them, and to deter them from speaking about the indiv- you know, criticizing public officials in the future. Um, so in almost all of the cases that we documented at the end of the interrogation, that person had to sign a pledge saying that I won't insult so-and-so in the future and remove the Facebook post or the tweet or the article or wh- whatever it was that caused uh, the case in the first place. And that's a huge violation of free speech because you're admitting that you're guilty In a police station without the presence of a lawyer before you've ever been to court and that has proven to be a very effective way uh, for politicians and public officials and religious authorities and security officials to silence anybody who dares speak out against them Um, because the case ends usually in the police station most cases don't even go to trial but in the police station already that person has removed the, the tweet or the Facebook post or the article. Um, and somebody who's been through that experience is unlikely to insult that person again because they don't, who wants to be called into a police station and intimidated and be interrogated and then possibly have a criminal record. Um, so it's proven really, really effective at silencing opposition. Um, so And since the October, uh, October uprising, we've really seen that Politicians have continued to use um, these laws to silence people, particularly people accusing them of corruption, because now this is the main issue that everybody's talking about, corruption. Um, And so politicians from, you know, the highest speaker of the House to other members of parliament have been using these criminal defamation laws to file complaints criminal complaints against people who are insulting them and get those posts removed.
0: So uh, they usually do so against journalists. But I have a question. Why do we go in about your lawyers? Is that like within the law?
2: So the law was recently changed in October of this year. So October, oh, wow. no, October 2020, October 2020. So before October 2020, the law was vague. It didn't say that people have a right to a lawyer to have a lawyer be present with them during interrogations at security uh security uh station or p- police stations um but and, and that as you can imagine created a whole host of violations that we've been documenting for years so you know in this case about free speech cases but also uh you have cases of you know people being brought in on drug charges and tortured into confessing Um, and this use of you know this use unfortunately of torture during these security interrogations to force people to confess used to be quite common Uh, and so human rights watch and a lot of Lebanese civil society organizations for years have been campaigning to amend the law so that it explicitly says that people called in for interrogation at any security body or security agency have a right to a lawyer to be present with them during their interrogation. And finally, this law was passed in October 2020. Uh, And so moving forward, hopefully there'll be a lot less of these attempts to intimidate people into signing these pledges or removing content online, a lot less uh, threats and intimidation and torture during these interrogations because there's a lawyer present. Um, so that that was a huge win for, for us and for civil society in Lebanon.
1: So in the summer of last year, the murder of George Floyd and other victims of police brutality sparked the start of the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. This then quickly initiated the conversation on the Kafala sponsorship system, which is prevalent in the Middle East and has been called modern slavery. The system fails to provide migrant workers with basic human rights and protection. So what have been the major detriments of in the process of updating this system and what would be and what would the alternative offer?
2: I'll begin by explaining what the Kafala system is. So basically it's a, uh, it's a restrictive immigration system made up of various laws, regulations and even customary practices. so things that aren't really written down, but they're just the way things happen that basically tie a migrant worker's legal residency to their employer. So workers can't leave or change their employers without the employer's consent, which of course places them at great risk of exploitation and abuse. And those workers who leave their employers without permission risk losing their legal residency in the country. And when you don't have legal residency in Lebanon, you can face arrest and deportation. Um so this system that really ties migrant workers to their employer gives employers a huge, a huge amount of control over workers lives. And it's led to a whole host of abuses that we've been documenting for years, including not paying them their wages, locking them in the home, making them work really, really long hours without any breaks and even physical and sexual abuse. Um, and then added to that migrant domestic workers or domestic work generally isn't covered under the labor law so the labor law gives workers protections so i you know you know i read the labor law and it says very clearly that you know the normal working week i think you know is a certain number of hours if you work extra you have to be compensated at an overtime rate you're entitled to you know, at least one day of rest a week, you're entitled to two weeks annual leave. Um, So it really has very important protections for workers. And if any worker feels like their rights are being denied or violated, they can go to the ministry and, and or to the police station and complain. Whereas because domestic workers aren't covered, so the labor law specifically says that it doesn't cover domestic workers. Um, so they're, they don't have any of these protections. Uh, so there's no limit on working hours, no overtime pay, no uh, annual or even weekly leave, no sick leave. I mean, so they're working basically without any, any, any legal protections. Um, so in most other countries in the world, including in the Middle East, either migrant, either domestic workers are covered under the labor law, or there's a separate law that regulates their work in the country and grants them rights and protections. Lebanon is one of only two countries in the Middle East that receives a lot of migrant domestic workers, but doesn't have any law regulating their presence in the country. Um, And and, I mean, we've seen the impact that the kafala system has had on migrant domestic workers. I mean, we all, we know, Every you know few weeks, there is a story in the news about either a migrant domestic worker who has committed suicide, uh, a migrant domestic worker who you know, tried to escape her employers because they were abusive, uh, a migrant domestic worker who wasn't being paid. Um, and that really became very, very, very obvious during the economic crisis. So migrant domestic workers are supposed to be paid in dollars because that's how they can transfer money to their families abroad. But as the economic crisis worsened, less people were able to pay their workers in dollars. Um, And under the contract of migrant domestic workers here in Lebanon, uh, the employer is responsible for the tickets back home for the worker. Uh, So if for any reason the contract ends, or you know, either party or usually the employer chose to end it, they're obligated to pay for a return ticket home. But what we saw uh, early in the summer was people who couldn't afford to pay their domestic workers just leaving them outside embassies and outside consulates, often without their passport, without their wages, uh, without their belongings uh, and without a ticket home. So these women were stranded outside of their embassies, outside with no means to sustain themselves. And that's, that coincided with um, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement in the US. So you had really more and more people seeing the very, you know, in a very obvious way, the impact of the kafala system on these women who are primarily from South uh, Asian or African countries, how they were being treated in the country and how very obviously, you know, their mistreatment you know, the mistreatment was very obvious because every uh, news channel covered you know, the, pro- the migrant workers being dumped outside of the Ethiopian uh, embassy, for example. So it became very obvious and it became so bad that Lebanon couldn't hide it anymore. You know, Before it was one case here, one case there, and most of the abuse you know, we'd know about as human rights organizations. But for the most part, they were ta- it was taking place behind closed doors in the privacy of people's homes, but the economic crisis and this phenomenon of people leaving migrant workers outside of their embassies with no support really showed just how messed up this kafala system was and how very, um, you know, and exposed also the race you know racism in our communities. Uh, where people think that these women are less than human and can just be left outside like, you know, someone's belongings that they don't want anymore. So I think it really forced a reckoning with what the kafala system means in Lebanon and, and the roots of this system, uh, and forced us to really start examining the you know racist attitudes in, in our communities.
0: But if you remember in the September of last year, the caretaker, minister of labor, I think she's Lamia Yamin Dwayhi shared her plans to produce a unified labor contract that protects migrant workers. So why was this plan then halted?
2: So we, we worked on this contract with the labor ministry for about two years. And the idea for the contract came exactly because, as we said, uh, migrant workers in Lebanon or migrant domestic workers in Lebanon aren't covered under the labor law, but there's also no other law that governs or gives them rights and protections. So the only legal document that they have is the standard unified contract that they sign with their employer. That's literally the only legal document that they have here. Um, And the existing contract is really bad. I mean, there's no way that you and I would ever sign a contract like that because it basically gives the employer full control over the migrant domestic worker. And it doesn't allow the migrant domestic worker to terminate the contract. So to end the contract, except with the permission of her employer, uh, except again in very serious cases of abuse. But usually, then also the you know the burden of proof is on the worker. So effectively, they once they sign this contract, they're trapped. They have no way to escape this working relationship without endangering their legal residency in the country. Um, so what we wanted to do through this contract was to Um, give migrant domestic workers all of the rights that other workers get under the labor law. So for example, the the labor law says a work week is 48 hours. We put in the contract, the work week is 48 hours. The labor law says uh, you're entitled to two weeks annual leave. We put in the contract two weeks annual leave. So we try to end this discrimination against domestic workers by incorporating all the same standards as the labor law. Um, And to her credit, the minister was very receptive. We worked with the minister for a long time to try to get this contract through, and finally she passed it. Um, But then very soon after, the recruitment agencies filed a complaint to block the implementation of the contract. And they argued that their commercial interests were being harmed, which is completely outrageous. You have these businesses in Lebanon claiming that their economic interests were harmed and prioritizing that and placing that above the interests and well-being and basic rights of migrant domestic workers. And unfortunately, the court sided with the recruitment agencies. Um, So right now, we're in the process of uh, filing appeals. So the Minister of Labour filed an appeal, as did the Madagascar embassy. Um, but we're waiting for the lockdown to end for the judges to resume their work um, and then see how we can push forward this uh, contract. I mean, it, uh, it was very disheartening. <laughs> it was very disheartening to see that after two years of you know, meticulous work on this contract, that the court just sided with recruitment agencies because of commercial interests. I mean, it, it, it just was outrageous. Um, so we're hoping that through a mixture of public and private advocacy, of, of, of and of engaging some of the main donors to Lebanon, that we can get enough pressure uh, to, to push this contract through. But again, you know, this contract is just a starting point. It's not a substitute for legal proper legal protections. It's just meant as a stopgap measure between when. Uh, you know, this contract passes and when we can really get the support that we need to amend the labor law. Because where there shouldn't be any discrimination, migrant domestic workers are workers just like anybody else, and they should have the same rights and protections. So everything that we do, we're trying to make the situation better. But really, it's no substitute for changing the labor law to include migrant domestic workers, and changing this really awful outdated immigration system to something that's much more just and guarantees the rights of uh, migrant domestic workers and doesn't trap them in these forced labor situations.
0: Okay, yeah. Having the highest number of refugees per capita, Lebanese policies do not offer refugees any legal standing in terms of education, healthcare, employment, making them at risk of exploitation. So how should we support these communities given the loud chance by several parties to finalize resettlement operations. How has COVID-19 disproportionately affected the refugee community?
2: So Lebanon hasn't signed the Refugee Convention, which gives, which obligates countries to give certain rights to uh, refugees, but it's still bound by what's called customary international law. So law that's just, is custom, that's the way that things are done, and that customary international law is binding on countries, whether or not they've ratified or signed certain treaties. And one of the principles of customary international law is the principle of non-refoulement, which means that you can't return refugees to any place where they would face a threat of persecution or torture. So Lebanon cannot, is legally obligated not to return Syrian refugees to Syria if they face risk of persecution and torture. Now, a lot of, we've been hearing from a lot of Lebanese politicians that the time has come for Syrians to return, that Syria is safe. That's not the case. Um, We as Human Rights Watch, but also multiple other rights groups continue to document very severe Uh, abuses in government-held areas in Syria. And we even documented that people who have been forcibly deported from Lebanon to Syria have faced arrests and persecution upon return. So the Lebanese government arguing that Syria is safe for return is just not true. Uh, And UNHCR as well, the agency responsible for refugees, has also said that Syria is not yet safe for return. So if Lebanon were to start returning refugees en masse to Syria, that would be a very, very, very grave violation of international law.
1: By the way, do the lockdown regulations apply to refugee camps?
2: Yes, they do. But what's really concerning, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, is the discrimination and discriminatory policies that many municipalities applied to refugees only. So... We I mean, We know from you know the media, we know from you know interviews with politicians, and that there is a lot of discrimination against Syrians. They're often, you know politicians often scapegoat Syrians for everything wrong in the country. So oh, we have a trash crisis. It's because of the uh, Syrian refugees. Oh, we you know we're broke. There's an economic crisis. Oh, it's because of the Syrian refugees. There's pollution. Oh, it's the Syrian refugees. And this is a narrative that's very, very dangerous, but one that politicians have been using over the last several years to distract the public from their failures at governing. Um, and so, but, but you know, people, some people believe this rhetoric because if they hear their leader saying it, you know, they, they believe it. Um, and so there's a lot of discrimination within, you know, Lebanese society against Syrian refugees. So, you know, people will say, oh, Syrian refugees, they all live so close together, for sure they're going to spread the disease. Or, oh, this person is uh, Syrian, so yeah, they probably don't have good hygiene, and so uh, they're going to spread the disease. So that a lot of this misinformation and a lot of these really xenophobic and racist attitudes really surfaced during the COVID pandemic. So at the beginning of the pandemic, when we had a lockdown, like a nationwide lockdown, um, I can't remember exactly what the hours were, but anyway, there was it wasn't a hours, 24-7 lockdown. There were certain hours with which you could leave the home. But what many municipalities did was have one set of regulations for Lebanese people and another set specifically for Syrians. So in one municipality, for example, they said, you know, there's a curfew between... Let's say uh, 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. But for Syrians, the curfew starts at 1 p.m. Uh, in another municipality, they said, you know, there's a curfew from you know this time to this time for everybody. But for Syrians, they can't leave their homes at all. Um, so I think we document. I can't remember the number of municipalities that we documented having these this discriminatory policies. But unfortunately, it was um, it was quite common. So on the one hand you had this kind of discri- movements restrictions and discrimination against Syrians, but on the other you also had, I mean the, the Lebanese government's policy towards COVID was, you know obviously if you have symptoms you should get tested and you should get tested for free because it's a public health hazard for everybody. Um, so they were really counting on people themselves reporting. Uh, symptoms and themselves calling the ministry to say, you know, I have these symptoms, what should I do? Um, but for Syrians who are already discriminated against, I mean, they didn't, from our, some of our interviews with refugees, they felt very uncomfortable calling a health ministry hotline to report any symptoms they, may be face, they might be facing for fear of Further discrimination or retribution against them or other members of the camp, um, and that's you know from a public health perspective, that's incredibly dangerous. You should you know, governments should be encouraging people to report their symptoms. They should ensure that people face no retribution uh, or no discrimination for reporting symptoms. But that, did, that that messaging didn't really get across in a very effective way to Syrian refugees. This past December, just a month or so ago, uh, me and a couple of colleagues went to do some research with Syrian refugees in Arsene, and it was really shocking that nobody had told them what they should do in case someone develops symptoms. So we all know that if you develop symptoms, you should call the health ministry hotline. They didn't know that. Nobody had told them. So they didn't have masks, they didn't have disinfectants, and nobody had told them what they're supposed to do in case anybody develops symptoms. Um, And this lack of really proper awareness by the government meant that there was a lot of misinformation about what the COVID virus was, how it spread, how to protect yourself, because this government information void was filled with these WhatsApp messages that we all receive that spread fake news or fake social media posts. And um, so really there the government failed to provide information, proper and accurate information about the COVID pandemic to Syrian refugees. And there is a right to information. So the government does, under international law, have the obligation to give people all of the information they need about Um, public health concerns and how to deal with these public health concerns.
1: Actually, last month, the member of the free patriotic movement, Wadi Ail, encouraged that the COVID-19 vaccination be only given to Lebanese citizens within the distribution plan. Now, we don't need an expert to realize that this rhetoric employed by the free patriotic movement is racist and unscientific as we need to vaccinate the two million refugees and migrant workers to achieve herd immunity now can you talk us through the distribution scheme for the covid 19 vaccine and how we seek to protect those marginalized communities
2: so thankfully um government didn't adopt what the thinking, and they announced that the vaccination strategy, the vaccination program, will apply to everybody on Lebanese territory, whether they're Lebanese or not. So anybody who falls into the priority criteria, so above a certain age or has um, certain uh, health problems or is an essential worker, um, regardless of their nationalities, any any person who fits into these priority groups will get the vaccination. And that's what the government said. And of course, it's very, very positive that the government has uh, announced that its vaccination plan is going to be inclusive. But you know, we, we've seen many government announcements that sound great, but then the application isn't so great. Um, So moving forward, our job will be to monitor the way that these vaccines are being distributed and administered. So are refugees able to register? Are migrant workers able to register, including undocumented workers? are, Are they able to get to the vaccination centers without being stopped at checkpoints and harassed? Once they're at the vaccination centers, what kind of documentation Uh, Do they have to show to prove their identity? And is that going to be an obstacle to them receiving the vaccine? Um, Do they face any discrimination from the ministry staff or from the uh, hospital staff while administering the vaccine? So there are many, many, many uh, things that could go wrong. And despite the government's very positive announcement, it's up to us to really keep monitoring and ensuring that you know, in the, the government's uh, vaccination plan is indeed inclusive and doesn't discriminate against anybody on the basis of national origin.
1: So you called the Beirut blast investigation opaque given the delays and shortcomings in the process. Can you expand on the lack of transparency in the judicial procedure? And is an international investigation the only solution?
2: So, I mean, I'm sure... You know, you guys have also noticed that the judge handling the investigation hasn't given a public briefing. He hasn't informed uh, people about where the investigation is, what he's found, who's charged, what the evidence against them is. Um, Everything that we've been hearing about the investigation has been from leaks. Um, and, And that's just not acceptable. For someone handling as important and pivotal an investigation as the Beirut blast investigation, the public has a right to know how the investigation is going. The public has a right to know who's been questioned, who's detained, what the charges are against them, um, when the investigation stops, when the investigation resumes. Uh, I mean, all of the, all of these are very basic facts that the public should have from a authoritative source, not relying on journalists to find a leak and report sometimes wrong information about the investigation. So that's been quite a big criticism of of ours for the way that the investigation is going. But what's even more worrying really is the lack of compliance with international fair trial standards. So Lebanon has signed a treaty called the ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And this covenant ensures the right to a fair trial. And it's very clear what components make up a fair trial. So for example, um, the right of somebody who's uh, detained to know exactly the charges and evidence against them. Um, The right not to be held in pretrial detention indefinitely. The right to meet with their lawyer privately. Um the right to appeal decisions of the of the judge, uh, because anybody who's facing a criminal sentence should have the right to appeal or, or to challenge the decision and have another independent body look at the decision again uh, to ensure the impartiality and fairness of it, but unfortunately none of these fair trial uh, guarantees are being respected in this investigation. So first, the government referred the case to this Judicial Council, Majlis Al-Adli. And this Judicial Council really, in its bylaws, doesn't meet international standards because uh, it gives exceptional powers to the judge leading the investigation. So his decisions aren't subject to any kind of appeal or any kind of review what he decides is final he has the authority to hold people in detention indefinitely even before they they go to trial um he has the you know he hasn't told uh the people who have been arrested since august what the charges are against them and what the evidence is against them So I spoke with the families of people who have been detained for six months and they don't even know why they're in prison. Um, And the people detained range from the head of the customs administration, head of the port authority to some workers who just happened to be in the port doing some repair works that day. But all of them have been detained for the same amount of time. All of them could face the same charges. And that's incredibly unfair. I mean, they all have very, you know, the the worker who just happened to be in the port doing repair works that day shouldn't have the same charges as the head of the customs administration or head of the port. Uh, I mean, it's just ludicrous. Uh, So, you know, there are some very serious due process concerns that mean that whatever the outcome of the investigation and the trial, it's not going to be free and fair, according to international standards, Um, which is why we've been calling for an international investigation that can really um, establish the facts, be in a transparent way, free from political influence. So we're advocating for sort of a parallel track. On the one hand, you have an international investigation that can determine the facts. But on the other, you need some really serious reforms to Lebanon's uh, judicial proceedings and its code of criminal procedure and its laws to bring them in line with international standards.
0: Yeah, I remember how they fought over choosing the judge for the investigation now, Fadi Sabon, subpoenaed uh, General Jean Kahwaji today for the investigation. So we have to see how things go. And we recommend uh, for our audience to read Lebanon No Justice six months after the blast to learn more about investigation
1: and all the violations recorded so thank you so much uh, for being here with us today uh, we recommend everyone to read Aya's article on human rights watch because uh, you expertly dissect the Lebanese sociopolitical landscape uh, all your work on the kafala system and police brutality are essential so we can move into a more liberal Lebanon where no one is afraid to raise their voice we thank you and thank every journalist that sheds the light on today's oppressive system